Now, folks, over the last couple of weeks, almost really a couple of months now, uh, we've looked at money, we've looked at work, we've looked at sexuality, we've looked at marriage, we've looked at a lot of different issues. And, and we've, we've said, hey, we're going to let the Word of God guide us as we do that. And it's, it's easy, isn't it, in our little bubble that we call the church? It's easy to kind of look at that and say, yeah, that's what we agree, that's what we, we want to do, and maybe we take it home. Well, not maybe. <laughs> Hopefully we take it home and, and we try to live it out there. But I think a lot of times it's, it is easy for us to try to say, how do I do my little thing in, in my little world? But we don't live in a little world anymore. And, and, and as we seek to follow God, we do that in a world that's not always supportive of that. Uh, we have a unique opportunity in the United States where as we seek to live out our faith, we do that where we get to choose a government, where, where we get to choose the politics that, that guides how we live out our morality. And so uh, I chose politics as one of the topics that we would look at under, the, under the, the, this series, It's Complicated. And to do that, I thought uh, I would bring in kind of an expert today. Actually, it's somebody I've been wanting to, to introduce to our church and, and bring to our, our, our worship services for a long time now. As a matter of fact, I tried to work out something a, a couple of Januaries ago, and that quite didn't happen then. And then when I started putting this series together, I thought, okay, this will be the perfect place to bring Victoria Cobb. And if you look inside your bulletin there, you'll see a little bit of a bio uh, on her life. She is the, the president, the leader of the Family Foundation, uh, which is the largest, it's the oldest pro-family uh, action group that's working up there at the assembly, working up there on, on Capitol Hill. And uh, she's been very skilled, very wise in that position. She's become very well known. Uh, she is, is seen, quoted, used at times by CNN, AP, uh, uh, news, of course, all of our, our papers throughout the state. Uh, she's kind of a go-to source for the family and, and for biblical morality. And uh, so I'm very grateful for her. I, I, I use their ministry a lot in some of the things that we do here. And uh, so I'm really excited to be able to introduce her today. So would you welcome to our church home today, Victoria Cobb. She is a... Uh, she is a member of a, she does live here in Richmond, obviously, with the capital being the primary focus of her work. Uh, she goes to one of our sister churches, Grove Avenue Baptist. And uh, if you do look at her bio, I, I got that bio. I found that on her and put it in there. But I found it apparently too long ago because the last line in the bio says that uh, she and her husband have three children. And as of this past August, they added number four. And uh, so she is a, a new mommy for the fourth time. And uh, uh, we're just glad to have you here, Victoria. You share. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and joy to be with you this morning. And, um, you know, when I go into churches, um, I, I discover, I always assume that just like my church, there are a couple different groups within a church with regard to talking about politics in church. There's the first group that loves that stuff, and they, you know, their Facebook page reads like a series of Fox News articles and Bible verses. You know who you are. And uh, then there's the group who they know that biblical principle and public policy somehow should go hand in hand, but work and life and, and, and our businesses, they get in the way, and it's hard to find time to even think about that, let alone do something about it. And then there's the third group who have already turned off because I just used the word politics in church. And so I ask you folks to bear with me a little bit today because I want to look at politics at its most base level. And politics is actually just taking a look at who is leading our culture and how. 
and how they lead. And so today, what I want to do is look at Scripture and see what Scripture says to us about who should lead and how, with a particular eye on what that means to us. Um, and, you know, I was a leadership studies major at the University of Richmond here in town, and, I, you know, I read a lot of texts about leadership. But I found that the most that I have learned about leadership comes from looking at the Word and looking at what Jesus said about leadership. So if you would, we're going to start in Matthew 15 and just read a couple of verses there. Um, this is a chapter where Jesus is, is engaging with the Pharisees, and it's the typical engagement you see with the Pharisees all throughout Scripture, where Jesus is uh, really rebuking them for their legalism. They're on him about the Sabbath. They're on him about what to eat. And Jesus chastises the Pharisees uh, and says it's about so much more than that. And, and at that point, the disciples step in. And so we're going to look at verse 12. And it says, Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard that statement? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus typically told stories or parables or gave word pictures with double meanings. And there's always the obvious literal meaning of what he was saying. And then there's the next level deep. So here we have him saying, among a host of other things, Blind people should never lead because, well, they can't see. And so they can't see where they're going, and they're not equipped to choose the direction or even, quite frankly, to uh, give directions to others. But at a deeper level, what kind of blindness is he talking about? Spiritual blindness, of course. It's that same light, dark conversation that we actually read later that Paul talks about. And so I want to turn there just to give some context to what we have just talked about um, in, that in that chapter. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 4. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4, uh, where Paul gets into this a little bit in just a moment. So it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not give up, Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but in God's sight, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if, in fact, our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Regarding them, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul talks about believers walking in God's sight and about how the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. That literally, and here's the quote from the scripture, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, that's God's little g, sort of the things that, that, um, that take over this world have actually blinded unbelievers from being able to see. Paul is saying, in total consistency with what we heard Jesus saying, that believers and unbelievers are not the same. They don't have the same capacities. He's not saying that there are a set of facts over which we disagree, like Jesus died, he rose again, he came to forgive my sins and to get me in right relationship with God. He's not saying that that's just a set of facts and one person agrees with it and one person doesn't. 
He is saying that one person can understand that set of facts and one person literally cannot. The fact is that two people can sit around and read God's word and pour over his scripture and the believer will understand it to its fullest extent and the unbeliever will not understand it and will fight against it oftentimes. Maybe you've heard that called Holy Spirit revelation, that upon the receipt of the Holy Spirit, we get divine insight that we can truly begin to understand and interpret the word of God. That's why when we pray for non-believers, we pray that he would open the eyes of the blind. That's something we talk about. Um, and we pray that rather than argue with people over a set of facts that they might not be able to understand. It's, the type of, it's this type of seeing and blindness that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the Pharisees. And later on in that book in Matthew, uh, and even in that chapter, he'll go on to say, Woe to you, you blind guides. And he continuously refers to the Pharisees, the leaders of that day, as blind guides. He is saying that they cannot see in an eternal sense. And that, and that has real practical application for the people around them as they are leading people, even though they physically cannot see. And, he, and they're all, Jesus says, going to end up in a pit. Now, we know our society is filled with people who can't see spiritually. But let's really draw into what it means for those of us who have believed in him and who do see. It's not just an understanding of salvation. Scripture is chock full of principles for living that everyone can read, but not everyone can understand. These principles are ones that are designed for human flourishing. The Bible is not just a how-to guide when it comes to eternal life. It is also very much a life application guide for the here and the now. It's the instruction manual from the one who made everything and who knows how it all works best. And here's where the family foundation steps in. We are a bunch of Jesus followers that see the principles in scripture and desire that our fellow mankind, specifically here in Virginia, are led, utilizing those principles for all of our well-being, for the best that Virginia can be, for the best that our society can be. Our mission is to strengthen the family by applying faith and founding principles to culture and public policy. We, how we are led as a commonwealth is how we will or will not thrive as a people. And it very much affects how we will or will not thrive as a group of believers seeking to share the gospel in our commonwealth. We see these principles and we wanna shed light on them for others. Now let me give you some examples of some of the principles that scripture has embedded in it that are valuable to society. For example, first, that human life is valuable and it is uniquely created in the image of God. And because of that, each life is valuable to society, whether it is born in convenience or not. We find that throughout the word, we find it first in Genesis when we talk about how man was made in God's own image. We see it highlighted in the Psalms where David talks about being knit together in his mother's womb and how wonderfully made he is. And you even see it in the genealogy of Jesus himself, where you look through that genealogy and you know that not every birth in there was convenient. 
And it's that, it's that understanding of a principle that gets the family foundation involved in defending life, whether it's embryonic stem cell research or in the phase of abortion or even euthanasia where we value life, not for the end that it will serve for society, but because life in and of itself is valuable. The second principle that scripture has in it that believers can see and others sometimes can't is that marriage isn't some contract between two people who love each other. Rather, it's an institution designed by God in the beginning, before the fall, where opposite genders complement each other so beautifully, and it's designed to be that living demonstration of Christ's love for his bride, the church, the unbreakable love, the true covenant. And so we get involved in issues of marriage, both defending that basic institution and also helping folks be able to keep that covenant for a lifetime because it sets the example for the world. Third principle is that in the Bible, it shows us that work, that hard work is actually something, well, work itself, not necessarily that it's hard, but work is something that was actually designed by God. It is also there before the fall. Because we see Adam is given the task of naming the animals. If you remember, he's given that purpose, something to do. And it's because work allows us to showcase that God image inside of us and gives us that sense of purpose. And it's because of that principle of work that we find in Scripture that the Family Foundation understands that it's not simply enough to hand someone in need food or housing. We actually have to restore that God purpose within them. Another principle that we see in scripture is that God designed three institutions and they're all throughout scripture and they have jobs. There's the institution of the family, there's the institution of the church, and there's the institution of government. And each one in the sphere that God laid out in scripture, doing what it's designed to do, allows humanity to thrive in its best scenario. Finally, another scripture, another principle that I'd mentioned that we can see that sometimes other believers can't is that while we desire for all to know and love Jesus, Scripture outlines a principle not of compulsion to faith, but of choices and decisions. That's why Christianity has brought not theocracies to the world, but governments where people of all faith are free and have the greatest freedom. Religious freedom is a scriptural principle. Now, these may all seem obvious to you and hardly worth the mention, especially since you've been focusing on them in your sermon series. But the reality is that these principles may be seen by the sighted, but may not be seen by those who can't see the unbelieving world. And these principles aren't just something that Christians can live by and we can just let others ignore, because the reality is in the interconnected way of our world, someone's principles will govern our society. And they will either be these principles that are meant for human flourishing, or someone else's, and they will affect all of us. Now, I have a two-year-old, Emma Grace. She gets a lot of hand-me-down toys from her big sister, Elizabeth, who's seven, and her, and her big brother, Timothy, who's five. And these toys typically require some knowledge of how to operate them. The battery-operated ones that need the on-off switch, or sometimes the remote control things that you have to actually learn how to use the remote control. And she gets her hands on them, and she smiles, and she's all excited for a minute. But then she discovers that for just a moment that she can't actually learn how to use them because she doesn't know how to use them. But being two, 
she doesn't actually turn them over to me. She's not willing to release them so I can show her how to use them because she's getting that instant gratification, that moment where she loves that toy. And yet I'm not trying to take away her fun, right? I'm trying to actually enhance her joy with that, with that toy. And I look at those scenarios that happen in our families and I see such similarity to what's happening with our principles in this world that we are not trying to take away anyone's joy, but we're trying to show people how these principles work. And in fact, it's, you know, if you look at God's principles, um, he knows, for example, how sexual, our world wants sexual freedom, right? But God knows how sex was designed to work, and he knows that outside of marriage, it can lead to painful things, like abortion choices. And so I want to just kind of talk to you for a minute. You know, at the Family Foundation, we get the accusation a lot that we are trying to impose our morality on someone else. Maybe you've heard that because I know it's not just an accusation that comes to the Family Foundation, but it also comes to any believer who seeks to share our faith as it pertains to the world around us. And I know it's the accusation that keeps a lot of us wanting to sit on our hands and be silent in the world of politics and or, pol or pol public policy. Um, but while we read the word and we know the maker of the universe, we just frankly would rather not be the one that rains on someone else's parade, right? I look at the idea of imposing morality another way, and I'd like to share that with you. We have sight. They are spiritually blind. Scripture says that. There's a pit out there. That pit is broken families, poverty, you name it. Should we just let the blind fall into the pit? Believers are great about helping people out of the pit. We really are. We care for the poor. We, we send money to various causes to help. We work with pregnancy resource centers that help women that find themselves in a time of need. Thankfully, most of the time, we're not the ones who walk right on by the person that has fallen when we look at the Good Samaritan story. But to the degree to which we stay silent about the pit to the degree to which we choose not to lead when we have sight and others do not, we allow people to unnecessarily fall into the pit. Sighted people have a responsibility to lead those who cannot see and should always lead because they're the only ones equipped to do so. For us not to lead or to refuse to do so endangers everyone who cannot see because they are left only with the option of stumbling around the best they can. It is a tragic act of cruelty and insensitivity for sighted people to refuse to lead those who are blind. What does it mean to truly love our neighbor? The way Jesus talks about loving our neighbor. In the same way that not sharing the salvation message with someone is not truly loving them because the end result is happiness now and eternal damnation later, so too is knowing biblical principles that could flesh out in public policy and mean thriving for human people, humankind, the same way is, is knowing all of that and remaining silent. These two concepts, loving our neighbor enough to share the salvation message and loving our neighbor enough to engage in the public policy process, yes, even engaging in politics, are very closely linked. In the world in which we currently live, to choose to stay silent in the political process, to allow the blind to lead, will force, will result in those of us who are choosing that now being forced to be silent later. 
While you might choose to remain unengaged, the engaged blind people not only prefer that you not be engaged in the political process, because your views might threaten their fun, but they also prefer you to stay silent, period, in the workplace, in the schoolhouse, and in the marketplace. The existence of your faith is threatening because they cannot understand. Let me give you a few examples. Last year, I observed the Virginia Board of Health meetings, where the board was reviewing regulations to ensure basic safety standards at abortion centers for women who make a choice that maybe you or I wouldn't make, but who, in making that choice, there should only be loss of one life, not two. And so these are basic safety standards, and as we, were, as we had a hearing about these regulations, we had people standing up, opposed to the regulations, speaking. But they weren't speaking about the regulations. They were actually speaking about the inappropriateness of one of the board members being allowed to serve on the board. His disqualifying feature? He was a known believer. Testimony given said that he should not be permitted to serve because of his beliefs in God. In the sight of the world, our faith doesn't give us extra insight. It cripples us. They would prefer us just let them fall in the pit. But that's not the type of love that Jesus talked about or that he called us to. Everyone's, even one's ability, as I mentioned earlier, to help pull someone out of the pit, to meet someone in a time of need, to care for them, is being threatened by the spiritually blind leading. Several years ago, the spiritually blind waged a war against, against uh, Christian adoption agencies because these adoption agencies are guided by scriptural truth, they believe and are convicted that a child is best raised by both a mom and a dad. And it's because of these convictions that the spiritually blind fought against them. The blind don't see that fact. In fact, they focus not on the best interest of the child, but in the fairness of the situation for a bunch of adults. So under the threat of forcing these Christian organizations to either violate their beliefs or shut down, we stepped in to help pass legislation to protect their right to hold convictions and continue to meet the needs of those they were caring for. It, they are simply trying to fulfill their James 127 call to care for widows and orphans. But the spiritually blind leading almost cost them their ability to do that. If we choose to ignore our role with sight in our society, others will force us to no longer have that option. Every year in Virginia, we make these choices about who can lead us, and we make them at the ballot box. We just came through this season. It was a painful season. I know, every time you turned on the television, you had some commercial that was dark, aggressive, negative, deceitful. I get it. I lived it. I'm with you. And in fact, they were so negative that by the time it was all over, not only did you not know who to vote for, but you didn't even want to vote. What if I told you those commercials are designed to help you stay home? There's a lot of people who would rather not have people of faith with spiritual sight stepping up to the ballot box and making a choice over who can lead. This is where the Family Foundation comes in. As I mentioned earlier, we're a group of Jesus followers that are trying to shed light and help people in our commonwealth see the biblical value and the value of those principles 
and having biblical leaders. We designed a voter guide, Pastor referenced it, um, to help cut through the commercials and cut through the personalities to get to the positions to help you be able to decipher how do I know if this candidate has spiritual sight? Do their views line up with the principles in scripture? Are they gonna be capable of leading our society without walking us into a pit? Both candidates in the elections claim to be able to lead. It ought to be pointed out that the claim to be able to be led by the blind person is in fact one that is technically correct and accurate. All he needs is to be able to validate that somebody's willing to follow and he's a leader. A blind person can grab somebody by the hand with all the confidence of a sighted leader, at least at the beginning. The only problem is that he cannot discern exactly where he might be leading, nor can he identify or avoid any dangers that are in front of him. The destination is the issue. And according to Jesus, it is both disastrous and unavoidable. When we vote, uh, sorry, when we don't vote, we leave the blind to choose our direction. They choose the leadership of our state. Could they possibly pick a sighted leader? Sure. Is it likely? No. It is more likely that the blind have now chosen a blind leader to lead our commonwealth. Now here's the worst part. Some of our people with spiritual sight don't just, don't just pass off their duty to vote, their responsibility to help lead that way, and thus we're left with the blind choosing the blind to lead. Some Christians actually proactively go to the polls and choose a blind person to lead them with their vote. If blind people following blind people is tragic, what is a new level of tragedy is achieved when a sighted person chooses a blind person to be led by, to follow a blind person when you can see? And what could possibly motivate somebody to do something so seemingly crazy? Consider why and how such a, such a sad thing might occur, might unfold. Perhaps a sighted guy, here's the blind guy delivering a stirring message, and he talks about this wonderful utopia and how he's gonna bring us along there, and it's better than where we are now. It's got benefits and blessings. Life will be easier. Work won't be so hard. He might not know how to get there with precision, but he's confident that he can do it, and so very convincing. Or the guy just wants us to follow him, can't really see where he's going, but my goodness, he is talented. He can entertain us to the extent where we don't even mind that we don't know where we're going. Now, there is that blind thing, but it's easily forgotten when he takes the stage because, you know, we'll enjoy ourselves while he tries to figure it out. So we might end up in a ditch, but we'll figure out a way to make it feel good. Here's another possibility. The blind leader isn't all that smart and he can't sing and every time he speaks, he kinda, you kinda wanna choke from boredom. But man, has he got a wagon load of stuff, of goodies that he's gonna give us. He promises to share them along our journey. And the great thing is it's all free. He's gonna pass them out as we travel. Now, we might end up in the ditch eventually, but we will be the most well-fed people in the ditch. And who knows if we'll even make it that far. The ditch is really far off. We're not in it now, and he's got all this good stuff, so why not enjoy it as we go? The sad condition that we have here in Christian America and in our own state is that people who have all the criteria for sight and who claim to be able to see are choosing to follow the leadership of people who are spiritually blind. They lack even the basic criteria 
for qualified spiritual leadership and yet are in places of influence and import and claim to offer direction and guidance to our people. This phenomenon is played out continuously in the political realm. Regarding the blind leaders of his day, Jesus instructed his followers, the ones with sight, the ones that could see, to leave them alone. Don't listen to them. Don't align with them. Don't approve them. And don't support them. We must stop willingly and knowingly follow people, following people who can't see where they're going. It isn't a personality thing. Blind leaders can be so very engaging and likable. It isn't a racial thing, a cultural thing, an ethnic thing, a religion thing. It's about where they are leading. What is their destination? If we've checked out the vision and discovered their vision to be blind, nothing else matters. One of two things happens every election. A certain number of the spiritually sighted or Christians stay home, leaving the blind to pick their leader. Or those who are spiritually sighted do engage, but are swayed by the great attributes of a leader and overlook the spiritually blind aspect. Both scenarios ultimately lead us to a pit. A couple of statistics. In 2009, self-identified evangelicals made up 34% of the voting, voting electorate. 83% of those people chose a candidate with policies that line up with a biblical worldview. Last week, self-identified evangelicals were only 27% of the vote, and 81% of them voted for a candidate with a biblical worldview. That's a loss of 71,000 votes to a candidate with a biblical worldview. The difference between winning and losing the governor's office in this year's election was about 50,000 votes. Now, to share with you the importance of who holds the governor's office, that governor will decide if inspections on abortion centers continue, or if Virginia ends up, like you might have seen on the news, with a Kermit Gosnell house of horror. For context, policies like abortion center regulations and informed consent and others have resulted in a 16% drop in the abortion rate. That's 8,000 lives that have been saved in the last four years alone because of policies set by either a spiritually blind person or someone who can see. My husband's involved in the current recount. You've read about it on the news or you know, seen it on the news with the attorney general's race that's going on right now. Now, as it stands as of what I heard this morning, um, we are about 50 votes are going to make or break who holds the Attorney General's office. Three million cast, 50 votes. That's pretty much a large Sunday school class here, I would imagine. Could pick the next Attorney General. Now, to tell you how important that office is, the next Attorney General has the option to defend or not defend the constitutional amendment that Virginians passed to define marriage as between one man and one woman. We only have one candidate in the race that actually said he would do that. So it's a pretty big difference, 50 votes. Now, we may or may not get the outcomes that we want because only God knows how he's best glorified in all of these situations. But just like evangelism, where we're called to share the word of salvation with others and leave the result in his hands, we are, we are called to be faithful in choosing our leaders and we leave the outcome in his hands. Now. In conclusion this morning, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
we have been given Holy Spirit revelation, a divine ability to see. With that comes a responsibility, a responsibility to lead so we don't allow ourselves and others to unnecessarily fall in a pit. In our democracy, leadership is either running for office, and I am personally so glad that you have someone in your congregation, Delegate Kirk Cox, who has stepped up as a believer to run for office. Or it's voting wisely, and then also holding accountable those who we do vote for. And it's being connected to organizations that help shed light, provide sight in the legislative process. That's another way to lead. Now, if today you're feeling convicted that your disdain for politics, which I understand, or your unwillingness to be accused of imposing your morality has kept you from fulfilling this responsibility as a believer, as one who can see the path to human flourishing, can see the way to avoid the pit. Make a decision today to step up, to take that responsibility, maybe for the first time. Now, there's some easy ways to do that. First, when you leave this service, consider stopping by our table and learning about Team Timothy. Team Timothy is our prayer effort. This is our team of folks who pray that the eyes of the blind will be open and pray for those in leadership roles in our commonwealth, whether they are blind or sighted. Or you could stop by our table and learn about the upcoming pro-life prayer walk. This is the first day of the General Assembly session. We meet at the Capitol and we walk the grounds and we pray before the next 60 days when the General Assembly comes into town. We pray for wisdom, for discernment, and we pray for the unborn. Because, as I told you, 8,000 lives in four years. Their decisions that are made in that 60 days affect real lives. I'd also encourage you to stop by and sign up for our email alert. It's hard to be knowledgeable if someone's not keeping you in the loop. It goes very fast, the process. So I encourage you to go ahead and get the information you need to have the best sight into the process. These are ways of taking your sighted responsibility seriously, requiring viewing no obnoxious commercials, just leading by prayer or getting involved. You know, I think of Bishop E.W. Jackson, who was somebody who ran for lieutenant governor this past uh, session. He was a pastor. And, you know, People are, you know, we look at racism, we, we, you know, we don't get into the personalities, but I'll tell you this, what he was criticized for in some cases were convictions of our Christian faith. He was criticized for believing in original sin. When a Christian steps out and runs for office and our faith is criticized, the least we can do is pray. If today you find yourself relating more to the blind person in this scripture passage, the beauty of Jesus is that he healed the blind. Pastor Hahn. Thank you, Victoria. Appreciate her message today. You know, folks, as she was talking, I just thought of the vision of this church, and that is to impact our community and our world for Christ. Uh, we don't just exist. We don't just mark time. Maybe it's happy time. Maybe it's not happy time. We're on this planet to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And you can't ignore government. You can't ignore politics and, and how we seek to live out our faith and to live out the word 
in that. And so I'm very grateful for a ministry like Family Foundation that comes alongside the church and, and helps us and supports us and is a voice for us up there. I hope you will uh, today uh, go by her table. Is it over here? Is it this end of the hall? It's down this direction. There's a, quite a few tables out there. Uh, but down this side, I hope you'll stop by. And uh, she, another uh, gentleman from uh, Family Foundation, Ron Gallagher, is out there. And just see, you know, just hear many things. We're just involved there. We're just prayer, uh, being, being ready, being willing, being able uh, to pray for our government, our, our leaders, and what is going on there. Uh, folks, we are to make a difference. But the good news is God's not judging us based on whether we make a difference or not. Did you know that God's not going to love you more if you make a bigger difference? He's not going to love you less if you make less of a difference. Because God doesn't love us more or less. He loves us perfectly. And that happens through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today, our goal is not to get some kind of political thing or to get some kind of action or to do this or to do that. Man, our goal for you is that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And at the conclusion of our service, as you go out these doors, right back against the window, there's a table there with a group of folks that would love to talk with you about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just go out there. They'll take as much time as you want to take uh, in discussing that question about a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you want to become a part of this church family. You want to be a member here at the Heights. You can go out there and ask them about what does that look like? How does that happen? They'll be happy to help you with that decision. Let's uh, stand and let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's been good to be in your house today, to be with your people, to be in worship. Uh, Lord, to be under the sound of your word. I pray that you'll bless what we've been a part of and use it to lead us and guide us in the way that we need to go with you and to walk with you. Lord, as we leave here, we want every aspect of our lives, our marriage, our money, our sexuality, our politics. God, we want everything to point to the glory and the goodness of you. Help us to do that as we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You have a great week.